Hey, it's Gabe. I want to recommend a podcast I think you'll enjoy called What Could Go Right. On What Could Go Right, the hosts, Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva-Lucas, sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues. They look back at how far society has come and look forward to what it will take to achieve a brighter future. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, listen to What Could Go Right wherever you get your podcasts. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com slash governance. IBM. Let's create. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey guys, the show's currently on break until the new year, but we've got plenty of classic episodes to tide you over. Enjoy this trip through the show's own history, and I'll see you back here on January 2nd with a batch of brand new episodes. See you then. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's December 19th. A Christmas Carol was published by Chapman and Hall on this day in 1843. It's really likely that you have heard this story. Ebenezer Scrooge, a cruel and stingy man, is mean to his employees and everyone else around him. And on Christmas Eve, he's visited by the ghost of his former partner, Jacob Marley, followed by the spirits of Christmas past, present, and future. It was written, of course, by Charles Dickens, and it's become a Christmas classic. And right from the beginning, when it was published, it was an instant blockbuster. Dickens got the idea for this in the spring of that year after he read a report on child labor. At this point, child labor was extremely common. Increased urbanization and industrialization in the 19th century had led to children working in factories, often working incredibly long hours in dangerous and inhumane conditions, often with things like rules that seemed draconian and just cruel. There were assembly lines, hauling coal, dipping matches. A lot of these working children were even housed above the factory in dormitories, so their work was basically their whole lives. And for people who were poor and could not find work, there were workhouses, and they had appalling conditions. Going to a workhouse was actually required by law under the poor law of 1834. If you were poor and had no work and couldn't support yourself, you had to go to the poorhouse. But intentionally, the poorhouses were so awful, no one wanted to go there. 
At first, Dickens had planned to write a pamphlet that was going to be called An Appeal to the People of England on Behalf of the Poor Man's Child. And like its name suggests, this was going to be a pamphlet about the horrors of poverty and child labor. But soon he decided that a work of fiction might be more effective, and he wrote that work of fiction over just a couple of months in the fall of 1843. The big moral of this story was that it was up to employers to treat and pay their employees well. On a more practical level than this benevolent goal of encouraging people to be more generous toward the poor, Dickens also needed to pay his own bills, particularly after spending a lot of money on a tour of the United States the year before. So he wrote a story that he thought would sell. And it did. The first print run of A Christmas Carol was 6,000 copies, and it was sold out in a week. By the next year, there were 15,000 copies in print, although Dickens didn't actually earn as much money off of it as he wanted to. A lot of this was really of his own making. It was at his request that they had used very fancy gilded bindings with the book itself full of etchings and woodcuts, which were very expensive. He wanted this book to be beautiful, and it was, but it was also expensive. And he even ordered last-minute changes to the title page and the end pages because the first ones didn't measure up to what he wanted. He had hoped to make a thousand pounds off of this book, and instead his first payment was for a hundred and thirty-seven pounds. Even though he didn't make nearly as much money as he wanted, though, he was really, really happy with how well this book sold and with how much of an impact it seemed to make in people's humanitarian perspective on the issue of poverty and child labor. Today, there are so many adaptations of this work, and that started pretty much immediately. People were writing plays that were based on A Christmas Carol right from the very beginning. Today, there are plays and movies and TV shows and the musical Scrooge. It goes on and on and on. It's hard to get through a Christmas season without being reminded of it somewhere. Thanks very much to Christopher Hasiotis for his research work on today's show. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. And to Casey for being so gracious that he never corrected me when I pronounced his name the way my high school health teacher did instead of the way he does. You can subscribe to the Stay in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in tomorrow for the first in a series of exits. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have supervision, enhanced hearing, extraordinary reflexes, to be, dare we say, superhuman? Well, Roku's new Pro Series TV can't do any of that for you. But with a 4K screen, side-firing speakers, and a blazing fast refresh rate, it'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio, and podcasts with the new Roku Pro Series. Your senses aren't better. Your TV is. 
If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM, let's create. Hi everyone, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a podcast where we dust off a little piece of history and place it ever so gently on your brain shelf every day. The day was December 19, 1946. The First Indochina War began. By the late 19th century, France controlled Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. The grouping was collectively known as French Indochina. French imperialism at the time spanned Asia, Africa, the Caribbean, and the Pacific. As with other French colonial territories, French Indochina involved the heavy exploitation of people and resources to France's benefit. In Vietnam, the French administration imposed all sorts of social and political changes on people. Trade in products like opium, salt, rice wine, and tea were lucrative, but economic progress only benefited the French and a small group of wealthy elites. The French also instituted a new extensive taxation system. And while there were some improvements in education in Vietnamese cities, the children of peasant farmers did not see that benefit, and much of the population remained illiterate. Plus, the French often pushed propaganda about its culture in schools. Traditional buildings were destroyed. Land ownership was concentrated in the hands of a small class of landlords, while a land-owning middle class of indigenous Vietnamese people was non-existent. And the Vietnamese bureaucracy lacked real power, while French authorities exercised extensive power. Those are just some of the ways French rule disadvantaged and harmed locals. But the Vietnamese did resist France's tyrannical rule. Anti-colonial and nationalist resistance movements popped up in Vietnam. Leaders and supporters of these movements called for Vietnamese independence. Ideas of resistance morphed over time, with sentiment geared toward the old imperial order at first and later toward new ideas that embraced Western values. After World War I, resistance kicked into high gear, but revolutionary efforts to oust the French were unsuccessful. Then came World War II. In 1940, the Japanese invaded French Indochina and collaborated with officials who were loyal to France's Vichy regime. But resistance leader and communist Ho Chi Minh and the Indochinese Communist Party had succeeded in uniting Vietnamese folks in the fight against French authority before. Ho Chi Minh and the Communist Party organized the Viet Minh, a nationalist alliance that called for an end to Japanese occupation and for Vietnam's independence from France. After the Japanese formally surrendered to the Allies in September of 1945, the Viet Minh proclaimed Vietnam's independence as the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, and Ho Chi Minh assumed power. The French and Ho Chi Minh reached an agreement in March of 1946, but negotiations weren't practical, and fighting escalated as Chinese and British troops supported the reestablishment of French colonial rule. French forces took southern Vietnam, and in November, French naval vessels bombarded the northern port city of Haiphong and killed thousands of people. 
the Viet Minh responded by attacking the French in Haiphong and Hanoi. The Viet Minh's attack against the French at Hanoi marked the start of the First Indochina War. For the next eight years, the Viet Minh remained engaged in guerrilla war against the French. Finally, in May of 1954, the war ended when the French suffered a major defeat at Dien Bien Phu. At the 1954 Geneva Conference, Vietnam was split into the Viet Minh-controlled North Vietnam and France's South Vietnam. Though that conflict had come to an end, political struggles in Vietnam continued as the Vietnam War ensued. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If there's something I missed in the show today, you can let us know at T-D-I-H-C podcast on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can also shoot us an email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We'll see you again tomorrow with another one. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design? All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro Series has all of those and the Roku Streaming Experience, an award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day, and regular all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro Series, a smart TV built by the streaming pros. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that skates through historic moments one day at a time. I'm Gabe Luzier, and in this episode, we're looking back at the inaugural season of the National Hockey League, including all the drama that went with it. The day was December 19th, 1917. The first four teams of the newly formed National Hockey League took to the ice for the first time. The season's opening night included the first two games in a 22-game schedule. In its earliest days, the National League represented just three cities. Montreal had two teams, the Canadians and the Wanderers while Ottawa and Toronto had one team each, the Ottawa Senators 
and the Toronto Arenas. The Toronto team eventually became the Maple Leafs, but at the time, they were unofficially known as the Arenas after the team's original operator, the Toronto Arena Company. The NHL had announced its formation just a month earlier, on November 26th. Prior to that, the National Hockey Association, or NHA, had been the sport's leading professional league. The decision to dissolve the NHA and establish the NHL was largely motivated by a mutual dislike of one man, Eddie Livingstone, the owner of a team called the Toronto Shamrocks. Livingstone was known for being confrontational and had fought with his colleagues for years. The final straw came in 1915, when he purchased a second team in Toronto without the league's permission. The other owners wanted to kick him out of the NHA, but according to league rules, they couldn't. To get around the problem, they took an even more drastic measure. All of the owners, except for Livingstone, met at the Windsor Hotel in Montreal and voted to form a new league. No Livingstones allowed. Three weeks later, the first game in NHL history was played between the Montreal Wanderers and the Toronto Arenas. It's worth noting that ice hockey was played a bit differently in 1917 than it is today. For example, forward passing wasn't allowed, and concepts like icing and line changes hadn't been introduced yet. Teams were also smaller, consisting of just 14 players, including only one goalie. For reference, the NHL now requires a minimum of 20 players, 18 skaters, and two goalies. In 1917's less complicated form of the game, teams often scored 10 or more goals in a single match, whereas teams today typically average around three goals per game. And speaking of goals, the first one in NHL history was scored by Wanderers defenseman Dave Ritchie. A little later that night, his teammate, reserve player Art Ross, was awarded the dubious honor of the NHL's first penalty. It was a close match, but in the end, the Wanderers came out on top, beating Toronto 10-9. Only about 700 fans were there to witness Montreal's win, even though free tickets had been offered to military personnel and their families. The crowd size was especially disappointing, as the game proved to be the Wanderers' one and only win. They lost their next three games, and then a couple weeks later, on January 2nd, 1918, the team's Westmont Arena burned to the ground. With nowhere to practice or host a game, the Wanderers wound up forfeiting their next match. As a result, the team's charter was revoked for being unable to play, and to add insult to injury, they were also fined $500. The second game of December 19th had issues of its own, including an overcrowded arena and a contract dispute. The match saw the Montreal Canadiens facing off against the Ottawa Senators in front of a packed house in Ottawa's Day Arena. The venue's seating capacity was 4,500, but on opening night, 
an estimated 6,000 fans had piled inside. All that extra body heat reportedly made the ice sticky and kind of mushy, which slowed down the players. Despite the impediment, future Hockey Hall of Famer Joe Malone scored five of the Canadiens' seven goals. It was a strong start to what would be an impressive season for Malone, with him going on to score 44 goals in 20 games. While Malone was cleaning up on the ice in the first period, two players for the Senators were refusing to play at all until their contracts were reworked. Right wingman Jack Darr and defenseman Hamby Shore had only agreed to a 20-game season with the NHA, but the NHL had added a few extra games to the schedule. The league quickly adjusted the players' contracts to account for the longer season, and both men joined the game during the second period, but by that point, the damage had already been done. The Canadians beat the Senators 7-4, leading the Toronto Sun to suggest that, quote, had the Ottawa's started out with their regular team, they might have landed the match. Despite these growing pains, the NHL managed to finish its first season, even though the Wanderers' departure had left them with just three teams. The dwindling roster led the Toronto Globe to declare that, quote, pro hockey is on its last legs. That prediction didn't pan out, as over a century later, the NHL is still going strong with more than 30 teams now spread across North America. The rules may have changed since 1917, but the sport remains just as captivating for both those on the ice and off. And of course, the goal of the game remains the same. Score a hole in one. Just kidding. I'm Gabe Lussier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you enjoyed the show, consider following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have supervision, enhanced hearing, extraordinary reflexes, to be, dare we say, superhuman? Well, Roku's new Pro Series TV can't do any of that for you. But with a 4K screen, side-firing speakers, and a blazing fast refresh rate, It'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio, and podcasts with the new Roku Pro Series. Your senses aren't better. Your TV is. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Mosley, and I want to let you know about my new immersive BBC Radio 4 podcast series, Deep Calm. It's all about how to tap into and activate a remarkable system that we all have, hardwired inside of us, our relaxation response. And it's been developed to be listened to at any time you want to really unwind. I hope you'll listen wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
What's up, guys? This is Sean, Lights Out Merriman, and Saturday, June 15th, Lights Out Extreme Fighting 17 returns to Casino Palma in San Diego. Get your tickets now at LightsOutXF.com, and we'll be live on Lights Out Sports TV, available on all major platforms. Doors open at 5 p.m. Pacific. You don't want to miss this one. It's going to be Lights Out. Lights Out Sports is free sports TV by athletes for fans. For details about the event and tickets, go to LightsOutXF.com.